Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 24, Sansa 2 and Sansa 3. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, the other girl that is also canon, except for, I guess, last episode where we shared our AUs. Um, you might also know me as Glass Table Girl on the Mason Monthly Podcast or on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Maybe you know me by my unpronounceable username on Twitter, Arithmetric. It's likely. It's likely. That's very likely. Um, we have an update. I'm sorry. This has taken us a while, but patrons, your stickers are finally shipping. Just like Woo! our AUs shipping. Yeah, I'm excited to take half that stack and uh, what a dangerous weapon I shall have in those stickers. Am I right? I will be just like doling them out everywhere. I'll be like, old lady on the street, put it on your walker, put it on your cat, put it on your bell wasps. So, of course, we have some emails and some tweets of no... I don't actually think we have any tweets this time. I think it's just some emails. And, of course, Eliana's favorite segment, the iTunes reviews. <laughs> iTunes reviews. But first, Eliana has one to read from you that's actually a little different. It's a message. Yeah, I got this one by a strange a strange method by a raven. <laughs> on It wasn't a raven, but... <laughs> I got it actually uh, on a, a Reddit DM, and I assume that this is fine to read aloud, and I think it's going to be great. So, user Duran Duranton on Reddit says, Hey, Eliana, I've been listening to Girls Gone Canon of late, and I really enjoyed you and Chloe providing a new perspective on Aswaf by deconstructing the narrative through a character-driven perspective. One thing that stood out on listening is both of you having a shared understanding that undoubtedly Ariadne will die by dragonfire. In parentheses, I suspect by da Daenerys. Could you unpack that a bit for me? As a longtime reader, my interpretation is that given Danny having the perspective of a woman in power and knowing the fate of Elia Martell, that if the Blackfire conspiracy is unveiled, Danny would show sympathy towards Ariadne, given the history of what happened to her brother's family. And perhaps some regret based on the repercussions of spurning Quentin? As someone who rejects the Mad Queen theories, this seems like a sound conclusion when you think a dragon may indeed sow seeds. I get how people interpret certain storylines being cut from the show may allude to those threads not having an impact on the overall storyline. And since Quentin was cut from the show, Arianne's on her way out. But if you have any further insight, it'd be much appreciated. They also say some nice words about Maester Monthly. Yeah, make sure to check out Maester Monthly. Uh, those are some really solid episodes. The last episode you guys did was actually a favorite of mine. Uh, probably around this time we have another one coming out um, that doesn't have me, but it does have Bookshelf Stud and Fat Walda, whom we had on this podcast. Uh, and It's tough because it doesn't have you. Having her. Well, but it also has Mighty Isabel. Oh, shit. Then, yeah, it's better. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, no, Mighty Isabel's great. No, Mighty Isabel's great. Yeah. We need Mighty Isabel. How do we get Mighty Isabel? Yeah. What is? Do you have her, think her people's numbers? Can we like call her people? I, I actually literally do have her number. Well, let's get our people to call her people and hook it up. <gasps> of course, right now is not about Mighty Isabel as much as I think everything always should be about Mighty Isabel and Fat Walda and Bookshelf Stud. 
Uh, it's not right now. Right now it's about Duran Durandon, which first, oh my God, Duran Durandon. They are probably hungry like the wolf, I would imagine. So good for them. I love that name. It's just a beautiful username. I love A Song of Ice and Fire puns. Uh, I think Eliana has kind of a different opinion. So I will, of course, let her speak about that after this because it's 2018 and we don't silence our wives anymore. But I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think... Let me at least start by, I don't, I think you might have a misconception of what I think is going to happen. I don't necessarily think Danny's going to go mad queen. I don't, also, I don't think Ariane dying in Aegon's arc is something that means her plot's meaningless or that the show has an effect on my opinion on whether or not she lives. I mean, even without the show having no Ariane, I don't even think that's a sign she dies. I think the justice for Elia arc ends up going like dead end no matter what right it turns from justice to revenge and the blood ends up running cold Doran's last chance at vengeance is this after he gets Quentin's bones back all he has is Ariane and the seeds are totally being sown to choose Aegon at every corner as we went through in our Ariane episodes right she keeps sending out her dragon and in the end she's choosing the wrong dragon I mean think of Ariane falling to her knees sobbing this wasn't supposed to happen no no I kind of think it's very possible for her to lose it all in wildfire. And no, I don't think Danny's leading toward a Mad Queen plot. Dragons don't plant trees, certainly, but there's no room for dragons to rule in Westeros after this coming long night. I think Danny's probably going to bring fire to King's Landing on accident. And, well, by accident, I mean in war. And leftover caches are probably going to ignite of wildfire. It's something that she doesn't mean to do, though. It's something that happens, which paints her as a villain in the eyes of people that see her. So not necessarily she's a villain because we're still going to get her point of view. And we still know Danny as this little girl who is just trying to govern, trying to rule, trying to take back her home and trying to make a better world. I think she's going to have to live with some very deep-seated issues. I think the guilt of her never knowing if Aegon was her nephew or not is going to haunt her. I don't think we'll ever know the truth even of who Aegon really is besides probably a Blackfire or at least a Blackfire implement for the throne. I think the guilt of Arianne and Quentin, all of that will definitely affect her. I don't think she's going to mean to do however they end. I really don't. And if she does, it's going to be she's pushed to it. Uh, via, you know, some sort of parlay, just like, you know, Stannis and Renly and Stannis accidentally sending out the shadow baby. He didn't realize what he was doing, what fucking Melisandre would do. I think there's a huge difference of Danny's not going to have Marwyn torturing people full on in the cells of the Red Keep. That's not what she's going to have with her weird necromancy magical person. I hate how Dorne's going to be treated in the end, but their entire plot is kind of like, oh, and then they began to scream, right? Like, that's... The arc is Elia doesn't get her vengeance or justice. Think of Oberyn taunting the mountain after he thinks he's won and finally brought the mountain down. And then he dies a gruesome death and the mountain goes on to, you know, be a zombie for a while until someone finally puts him to sleep. It's Quentin trying to live up to his father, right? And what his father wants him to do, this man that he barely knows, trying to be the hero and still burning. And it's Arianne claiming her birthright and trying to bring honor to her family only having it all come crumbling down in the end, you know, the blood in the sand. Yeah, so I think there's a lot there that I agree with. I think the only thing that you and I necessarily disagree with is that whether or not Arianne dies. But I feel like the way you've positioned this just now is that 
kind of agnostic on the whole idea that regardless of whether or not she dies, you and I are in agreement that Arianne is going to see everything that she has wanted, all of her ambition and like how she has tried to climb this ladder and so forth by latching on to Aegon. But also, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, they're both hot. So like, it's going to be that that shotgun, shot axe wedding. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, just having it all crumble before them. I mean, they're going to reach the throne. Like, oh, yeah. For sure. Aegon's going to be coronated. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with all of that as well. And I think the only thing that we really disagree on is whether or not Arianne dies. But I, again, you seem like yeah. you're kind of agnostic on it. And like for me, it's just that I think that Arianne lives. Because for me, that's more of a consequence to her actions. Because we see that Arianne struggles, right? With this guilt. She struggles with being alone and not having anyone truly to acknowledge her and like tell her oh you did such a good job but she's mm -hmm. gonna be like no arian you did a terrible job <laughs> and now everyone's dead and it's you really fucked this one up so for me it's that i find it to be a more uh it to close her arc better and i also agree with all the things you said about daenerys like i also do not think that daenerys is necessarily going mad and i think i don't know that danny's going to think about how arianne is necessarily from that perspective mm -hmm. of being a woman in power i don't know how much that comes into play in in terms of the story and it will definitely be interesting because she won't be the only one right it's not going to just be daenerys in arianne presumably we might see sans exerting some power and Marcella slash Cersei they're not like necessarily exerting a lot of power but they are of course like at this moment in the book still in the game Cersei's playing whatever game she's playing and but yeah so I do think though as you said that Daenerys is going to be perceived in world as a villain there's a lot that's pointing towards it and I think that's absolutely necessary for her character arc like she has a PR problem, right? She's coming over with a horde of Dothraki. She's coming over <laughs> with, like, dragons. And then... Maybe Unsullied. Unsullied, like... And eunuch slaves? slaves. Like yeah, eunuch slaves to a country that supposedly is, like, anti-slavery in name. You got fucking trolls over there. Yeah. And then you also have... um what she may or may not be coming with some ironborn unsure like this is not this is not never mind uh, marwin the mage and makoro yeah. and she's gonna have you dope. know red priestess or yeah. red priests and priests you know like yeah. she's not exactly i mean stannis is just you know paving the path for danny to walk in with his support of relore mm -hmm. and thinking he's the hero i mean there's so many good quotes from stannis you know when he says to Davos, I had the cart before the horse, you know, uh, I was trying to win the throne to save the realm or yada, yada whatever, whatever that guy, do, that dude we know says. Like, Danny is very much so, I mean, if she does destroy King's Landing, which I think could happen, I mean, it's a very possible thing, especially when you think about her House of the Undying vision with Aegon's, uh, the, the cloth dragon on poles, I mean, 
that's Aegon's coronation parade. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. That's the streets of King's Landing, a cloth dragon being paraded by mummers through the streets. That's all I can see on his coronation day. I mean, if that happens and the the animosity from, you know, by the time Danny shows up and tries to console with him, it's he's already married to Ariane. There's no second choice. You know, he can't just drop and say, oh, well, I'm going to marry my aunt now. He already said he's not going to do that. And Danny has dragons. Why should she bow to him? Her claim, she has the dragons. So yeah. in the end, when he refuses her and when he won't, you know, step aside, of course, Danny's going to awaken the dragon. She's going to be coming back from, you know, leading the Dothraki finally. And after King's Landing is destroyed, where's Danny going to go? Well, the only place she can go from there, north. And the unfortunate fact is that I think Vanessa Cole on Twitter made a great point about this. What Daenerys has been taught uh, in terms of what works in terms of ruling and power is power, is violence. And Mm -hmm. it's not always the only path, but she's had a rough go of it, right? Trying to rule and, and take control of Slaver's Bay. And as you said, Quaith tells her dragons plant no trees. And while I don't know that that's necessarily the last beat in Danny's mm-hmm. storyline in terms of her characterization, it's definitely a big part of it where Danny will find herself becoming darker. She'll be giving in to more of these um, these urges because it's the easy way to try and get things done, like using fear as opposed to love, especially with Tyrion. Lannister whispering at her ear eventually um, because the Tyrion that we have in the books is not the same as the one that we have in the show. Uh, The Tyrion that we have in the books is someone who very much wants to take revenge upon a country and family that has spurned him and he's going to be pushing Danny towards cutting these ties. I, I don't know that Aegon is going to tell Danny that he can't marry her. I think that Aegon would probably tell her, like, our grand, our great, 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 great grandfather did it. And she's going to be like, ah, uh, as you said, I'm the one with the dragon. Also, it's my throne. Like, excuse me, little boy. You're going to need to step off of my throne. Yeah. I mean, think of Aegon seated on the Iron Throne, coronated, wearing Aegon One's crown. With, you know, Blackfire, the sword with him. I mean, think of, you know, the cloth dragon parading through the streets and the people just so happy. And Ariane, like you said, finally reached her ambition. And she's, you know, the queen, the queen of Westeros. And just, oh, and then they began to scream. Yeah, it's going to mean a lot for Danny. It's, it's the hardest thing won't just be, in my opinion, seeing that. Aegon has the throne and has Arian at its side. It's that I think that there were, in fact, to some extent, while maybe they weren't sewing Targaryen banners beneath the cover of night as Viserys thinks, we do know that there were Targaryen loyalists, literally mm-hmm. Dorne. But all of the fanfare, all of the welcome that comes with coming home that was meant for Danny, Aegon's stealing it all. And I think that's going to be very painful for her. Yes, absolutely. Especially when, in the end, her nephew... Aegon, you know, isn't really Aegon, and she ends up meeting that nephew and that real nephew of quote-unquote Aegon. You know, he never, he would never have wanted that throne. 
that other nephew, of course. Oh my god, we are on such a tangent. Oh my god, I know. But I can't help it. It's so talking. good. This is I so good. I love talking about like Danny's storyline. Um, Aegon, Aegon, if he turns out to be a Blackfire, or if that turns out to be a very, very strong suspicion, is of course going to poison the well in terms of the interactions between Daenerys and Jon. She's gonna be like, well, how do I know that you're fucking actually Rhaegar's kid? Not even just between Danny and Jon, between Danny and anyone. I mean, like True. you said, Aegon yeah. took that from her. That was her welcome. Yes. These were her people. She was supposed to show up and be the beautiful silver queen here to save the day with her beautiful dragons. And instead she shows up and she's just destruction and burns things in her path without even meaning to. And dragons mm-hmm. can't plant trees. And yeah. So anyways, in Sansa 2 and 3. Uh- <laughs> um. Yeah, we also got other things on <laughs> Fucking. <laughs> that was worth it it was worth it i love no it was worth it i yeah. as you know i'm excited to we're not gonna get there for a long time Ever. we so we have structured structured this in a way anyway whatever <laughs> you don't need to know i am being very patient as patient as sansa okay in terms of waiting for us to get to these dandy chapters yeah, it's going to take a while, but they're going to be good. I I mean, this was your sneak preview, Girls Gone Canon fandom in uh yeah. for the future of when we get to Daenerys chapters cuz it's it, it, not to make a pun, which we hate, but it's lit. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, and that these these great insights, these this great uh use of language is what makes us fandom luminaries according to Lady Pris on iTunes. Yeah, Lady Pris says, Girls Gone Canon features two of the most respected prominent ladies in the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. It's hard to say that with Are a straight we? face. It's silly. I don't, I don't know. That's I silly. Don't know, like, There's so many others. I want to believe. No, I'm joking. <laughs> when I see this podcast pop up on my feed... I immediately listen to it and share with everyone I can. The ladies are knowledgeable, funny, and you can relate to them on a personal level. They thoroughly break down chapters and character arcs. Even if you've read the books many times, they still manage to offer new perspectives and insights you might have missed the first time. Here's to many more podcasts to come and Sansa Forever, 12-hour Blackwater episode. Whoa, you just <laughs> added two hours close. No, I didn't. I, w- I was like starting, you saw, I sent you a message earlier this week. I was like musing like, I guess a 10-hour blackout Blackwater episode is possible. It's doable. Is that like a filibuster? Like a Blackwater filibuster? Yeah, it's doable. I 12, I think, is pushing it. 10, I think, is doable. Yeah, so make sure I'm, to I'm tune joking. in for our 16-hour Blackwater episode. Oh my god. Um. Yes, thank you, Lady Pris. And as she said, this is true. She does post it everywhere, everywhere like on on her networks whenever it comes out and we really appreciate yes. it and she she's been out here standing us from the beginning and i really have always appreciated it yes thank you so much priscilla and then finally we have our most recent comment called <laughs> i love this the title is easy listening by Casey the catastrophe same Casey says i look forward to listening to this every friday great discussion zany and a little weird just like all great things. True. I like that one. It's very yeah, us. I like it. Guys, our lightning rounds are packed full, so we're going to move through this now that we spent 35 minutes discussing things that weren't Sansa. Uh, we're not going to talk about Daenerys in this lightning anymore. round. Anymore. Yeah, not anymore. 
And also we cut out Dadvos for the time being. Uh, we do have to keep Tyrion in, unfortunately, so we'll keep him brief as he is. Tyrion won. Tyrion starts his new job, Hand of the King, at a small council meeting. He goes to the Broken Anvil later, and he finds Varys and Tyrion's mistress. Bran won. Filled with resentment in his broken body and his new house guests, Bran tells Maester Lewin about his wolf dreams. Lewin gives Bran a sleeping potion, but Bran still dreams that he is summer, trapped in the godswood. Arya too. Arya continues meeting refugees of war on the road north and makes an unusual friend in Jack and Hagar. Later, gold cloaks arrive to arrest Gendry, and Yorin refuses to allow them. John won. <laughs> Sam pours over maps for the ranging, and John and Donald Noy chat. They present their maps to Jair Mormont, and then they discuss Maester Eamon's past. Ah, uh, John, chapters in early clash are just a little exposition-y, is a nice way to put it. Uh, in Catalan 1, King Rob extends peace terms to Cleos Frey and argues with his mom about Theon Greyjoy and Jaime Lannister. The Blackfish later discusses war plans with Catalan as they plan an alliance with Renly Baratheon. Damn, Cleo's Frey, what a throwback. Tyrion, too. After hosting a mini dinner party with Janos Slint, Tyrion has Slint arrested and forces him to join the Night's Watch. They say don't have dinner with a Lannister. They say don't be a douchebag to Ned Stark. Oh yeah, wait, that too. I forgot, he's kind of a douchebag. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's like the worst. Bad. His son... Uh, his son could be okay, but he's grown up. So anyways, Arya 3... Taking the back roads to be undetected, Arya and company travel west, encountering a burned village and also a wolf pack. Yorin thinks they should have taken a ship to avoid this mess. Theon won. It's our son! He's a POV! Yep, that's it. That's a chapter. In John 2, John investigates White Tree, one of the four abandoned wildling villages, and we also meet Dolores Ed. That's it. That's also that chapter. Arya 4. Resting at the God's Eye, Amory Lorch and other Lannister raiders demand Arya and her party open the gate. Yorin refuses and orders Arya to lead those left from the battle, and she does, including three criminals locked in a wagon. Tyrion 3. Cersei's kids are incest bastards. XO, XO, gossip girl. Tyrion and Littlefinger fight fire with fire, and Tyrion goes to get some bling made. Later, he visits the brothel through a secret passageway and has a little chit-chat with Varys. Brand 2. It's, it's Winterfell. The Bachelorette slash Harvest Feast edition. <laughs> as all of the lords show up and they're trying to marry Donella Hornwood. And Donella worries that Ramsay Snow is going to try to seize her lands. No rose for him. <laughs> Clay Serwin shows up bearing Stannis' news, and then Bran dreams of a golden man throwing him from a tower. Who could that be? I don't know. Tyrion 4. Remember when Kanye and Kim gave different photos of their kid to find out who they could trust? This is like the original version of that, but with Tyrion giving different small council members different versions of his plans for Tommen and Marcella. That, that was our description for that chapter, too. Yeah, we don't care. <laughs> so this brings us to Sansa Stark at Clash of Kings 2. Sansa gets a note to come to the Godswood tonight. After much deliberation, she goes then to meet Florian 
for her jonquil, promising to rescue her from the monsters in King's Landing. But first, she must wait until the time is right, and as she flies back to her cage, the little bird has an encounter with a gruff old hound. Come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. This is the big repeating sentence in Sansa's chapters in A Clash of Kings. And Sansa got a note. I'm also very sure. Okay, I'm going to repeat this sentence for you. Come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. This is a Terminator reference, all right? It is referencing come with me if you want to live. It's a similar sentence construction. Like, think of the time period when this uh, series was popular, like, in culture. And, like, there's no way George didn't fucking watch it. And I'm very sure of this. I'm actually really not joking. Like, literally, this is a reference to Terminator. We're a Terminator podcast now. It's real. This is real life. Sansa, of course, finds the letter beneath her pillow, like the fucked up tooth fairy, right? The note was unsigned, unsealed, and the hand unfamiliar. She is thinking on the note. She's rubbing a bruise that was given to her from Marin Trant, and she goes off into thinking about that bruise. His fist was mailed. <sighs> His fist had been mailed when he hit her. It was her own fault. She must learn to hide her feelings better so as not to anger Joffrey. When she heard that the imp had sent Lord Slint to the wall, she had forgotten herself and said, I hope the others get him. The king had not been pleased. Also, get it, baby girl? Sansa thinking, like, this is her own fault and that it's her fault for not hiding her feelings better. This is some, like, fucked up abuse victim shit like for her to internalize that it was her fault for angering joffrey because it is joffrey's fault it's pretty sad because sansa's self-confidence is completely shot that's what makes of course elaine one in the winds of winter the sample chapter that we will go into eventually on patreon that's what makes that chapter so important is because sansa seems to have self-esteem in that chapter right she seems to be a little more carefree in every chapter until then, though, Sansa is busy thinking everything is her fault, that she's stupid. She spent most of her prepubescent years now here, you know, being told she's stupid and just an idiot and that she's a traitor and she's awful and getting beat. Like, that's that's not cool. That's pretty bad. That's not a way to, you know, it's not good. It's not how we should be treating not how anyone should be treating young people i mean that's when they develop the most you know like that is a very yeah. important developmental age i mean imagine if you were having that happen to you yeah don't be surprised if when the world tells you that you're terrible and that you're worthless you begin to believe it yeah when you tell people at that age it's very sad Sansa, though, wonders who sent the note and she goes through this list of possibilities including the possibility that it this note might be a joke or a hoax. The fact she goes through these options before just trusting what it is, and which we'll see in a bit, she even leaves with a knife when she goes to meet it. It's impressive to me for a 12-year-old kid who wasn't trained in arms. She wasn't getting personalized sword lessons. She was getting lessons on courtesy and the gods and sewing. Sansa didn't take a self-defense class, right? She just took her instincts and went out with them. That's all she can rely on. Then the door suddenly opens and a bedmate comes in and like, I don't know, this bedmate didn't even knock. Like, Sansa obviously is surprised and just goes, what do you want? And Sansa is pretty sure that all of these maids are Cersei's spies. Like, they're changed every fortnight. 
The maid's all like, I just came to see if you wanted to take a bath. Then she makes Sansa a fire in the hearth, and then Sansa thanks her and throws the note that she's received into the flames, which is absolutely a Catelyn Stark move, as we saw when Cat received that note from Liza. Oh yeah, and it's so smart. Sansa knows she's in the lion's den. She can't have a semblance of being herself or letting people know her thoughts or motives. She can't afford that risk right now. She's tempted to go to the godswood right away, but she can see Sir Preston Greenfield from her window, and she's afraid that people might get suspicious if she starts to wander the castle. She wonders what she should do, and she wishes there was someone there to tell her or even comfort her. She missed Septa Mordain, and even more Jane Poole, her truest friend. The Septa had lost her head with the rest for the crime of serving House Stark. Sansa did not know what happened to Jane, who had disappeared from her rooms afterward, never to be mentioned again. She tried not to think of them too often, yet sometimes the memories came unbidden, and then it was hard to hold back the tears. Once in a while, Sansa even missed her sister. By now, Arya was safe back in Winterfell, dancing and sewing, playing with Bran and baby Rickon, even riding through the winter town if she liked. Sansa was allowed to go riding too, but only in the Bailey, and it got boring going round in a circle all day. And that's kind of what being a captive does, right? It isolates you. It makes you think these kind of thoughts of loneliness and, you know, desperation. This is also something we're going to explore a lot more in A Storm of Swords. But as we've mentioned before, Sansa spends a lot of her time pushing down and repressing memories and thoughts. Like, as a defense mechanism, the only way to process all of this harsh trauma she's experiencing as a 12-year-old is to pretend it didn't happen or... Imagine a romanticized or less painful version of what actually happened. I do think it's interesting here. Like, okay, first of all, every now and then you see people being like, Arya thinks about Sansa and Sansa never thinks about Arya. I'm like, did we read these books? Yeah, Sansa and Arya think about each other about the same amount of times. Yeah, Sansa is literally thinking about Arya right here. And talking about how she misses her. I do think it's interesting, though, that Sansa's like, oh, and Arya was dancing and sewing because to an extent. The answer is yes, but in a different way, right? Because Arya is doing the water dancing and she's sewing with her own needle. Yep. All through winter. All through winter. Very cute. Very cute. Sansa hears shouting outside and sees that Preston Greenfield is gone. There were rumors of unrest all around the city, right? Lots of people were crowding in and running because of the war. People were robbing and killing each other all the time. And so we get a glimpse of the effects that the War of the Five Kings has here. Like, through Arya's perspective, we see what it's like there, but we also get to see what the effects are on the cities, right? And we kind of understand what that's going to mean then in the long run for Westeros. Like, we all know that winter is coming. It means the others. And a war-torn country isn't any good when it when you need to be presenting a united front against the magical ice demons. But we also see that part of the toll of war here is that folks who live in those rural areas are fleeing to the city for some sense of refuge uh, or because they have been displaced by the different raids. They have no more homes. So they have no defense, right? If they wanted to like start a new one or stay where they were before. And so they have to go where there is protection. They go to the city. And for some, King's Landing might be their choice because it's the closest fortified city, especially when it comes to the fact that many of these people are likely coming from the Riverlands, which has always been in that very unstrategic place. 
And lest we forget, some of those who are raiding the villages are Lannister men, as we learned in Ned's chapters in A Game of Thrones when he had to send people to like bring Gregor Clegane to heal. And of course, the Lannister men aren't going to attack their own liege lord slash king, so that's why part of why they're going to King's Landing. But along with having that disunited country, like these raids have ruined those farmlands that would support Westeros in the long winter. That means that there's no one to replenish those stores or attempt to even create more food in those last crucial few years before winter fully arrives. Yeah, it's really outlining this tension that's a plot string in Sansa's arc and Tyrion's arc in Clash of Kings and Storm that, you know, this rising tension. It, we see it when the Tyrells arrive, it gets pushed right to the forefront. Uh, you really get to see it in Clash of Kings right before the riot. This thread, this plot just emanates in the background. It simmers until it bubbles over. Sansa fails to convince herself to go to bed and she gets dressed to run to the godswood. Before she leaves, of course, as I mentioned earlier, she brings a knife. If it is some trap, better that I die than let them hurt me more, she told herself. She hid the blade under her cloak. I find this line kind of interesting to me because it says it, it draws a connection to me between like Sansa and Tyrion, whose storylines are of course very intertwined in this book and the next. Uh both of them have like I think these internal smarmy comebacks. Tyrion, of course, sometimes says some of his aloud, as we're gonna see soon. But they also have these similar mindsets, like when Tyrion takes those poisoned mushrooms from Illyrio initially, like in case Tyrion's like, ah, I might need to kill myself for some reason. And so he thinks he'd, he also has these thoughts that he'd rather die than stay a slave. And these things eventually, these uh, mushrooms and the knife that Sansa grabs, these get used against others instead of themselves. But I, I, I think there's a thim- similar thought process there. It reminds me also, I mean, the show kind of, you know, hold Cersei with Tommen with the uh, the poison in the throne room. I know there are a lot of historical analogies and comparisons you can draw there, like Cleopatra, of course. I mean, royals had backup plans for when shit went wrong. For sure. And then Sansa's running through the Red Keep because she's going to go to the Godswood. She's decided we're doing this. And then she comes across this ragged tomcat whom, have we seen this cat before? Yeah, uh, it's the same cat from Arya's chapters with the chewed off ear, which, I mean, it's Balerion it the Black is Dread. reincarnated. It's Rhaenys inside Balerion the Black Dread. <laughs> she warned him in her last few moments. Um, actually, it's skin changing, Eliana. Is it? Yeah, it's not a dog or a wolf. Finally, Sansa gets to the godswood. <laughs> and Sansa thinks that Lady would have definitely liked this place, and I think the last time we saw this place, right, was in, like, Ned's chapters. Yeah, we last saw it, well, it was kind of more of a sour meeting with Cersei and Ned. Uh, Before that, though, it was Ned and the girls when they were praying for Bran in their vigil. That was nice. Oh. Oh, babies. Dad, no. no. Sansa (laughs) feels as though the old gods are there, watching, and, spoiler alert, they are... As the words say, in the heart of the castle, the heart of the city, you could feel the old gods watching with a thousand unseen eyes. Especially maybe Bloodraven with his thousand unseen eyes. Of course, Sansa initially used to prefer the pageantry of the Seven, but now she feels that the godswood has power to it. And this has shown a lot of that whole, like, grass is always greener on the other side thing, you know, all that glitters is not gold. 
now that Sansa has been, you know, now that she saw her dad, his head cut down and toppling down the steps of a sept, you know, in this beautiful land of ladies and lords, it's not such a beautiful land. It's not such a beautiful religion. You know, she loves the pageantry and everything, but now she just feels like she wants to go home and sit under a real tree and just look at the red leaves and play with some snow. And look right? at its creepy red face and be like, this is a real tree. With blood in it. <laughs> she prays, help me, send me a friend, a true knight to champion me. And finally, someone emerges. It's Sir Dantos. Sansa is heartbroken. Which, like... I mean, a little same. What a disappointment. Like, wish it were the hound. I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. Sansa asks what Dantos wants of her, and then her hand goes for her knife instinctually. And then she accuses Dantos of being drunk, and Dantos is like, uh, I only had one cup. <laughs> and like, I don't know. How big was the cup, Dantos? Right, was it like Joffrey's size goblet from the wedding? Or like, you know, yeah. also me. How big was the cup? Same. Yeah, like, I'm not going to say I haven't done this. I'm just asking. Yeah. Same. How big was the cup? Just curious. I just need to yeah, judge Dan the, the, the buzz. And Dantos says he needed it for courage, which same. Okay. I go to networking events. I understand the feeling. And... For him, though, he's like, oh, it's because I, too, am also at risk here. But, like, what if you were networking, Dantos? It's kind of pathetic because, in the end, he needs it for courage because he's selling her out for gold, right? For the promise of gold to let him go drink it all away when he's on the run. Sansa softens the situation and she starts thinking, of course, like we mentioned, he's her Florian. She romanticizes it. She processes it to make it normal that this old drunk man is kind of like all over her like i'm gonna get you to rome and in the end <laughs> he's no true knight right he's nothing close and what will they do to me sansa found herself thinking of lady again she could smell at falsehood she could but she was dead father had killed her on account of aria she drew the knife and held it before her with both hands uh, not a good look sansa it's not a good look not great that she blames Lady's death on Arya, but it, we do, of course, get some information, though, about how important the wolves are, but, like, not a good look. And at the same time, again, the only way she can process Lady's death is this way, and it's interesting because we don't get to see her emotions on it all. We don't get her POV during the chapter at Derry. We, we get the aftermath, and we don't get the grieving ever from Sansa. It's like, this is the first time Sansa's had time to grieve on it at all. She all, I mean, you see this with how she thought of Arya. Arya must be home already, even though in her heart of hearts, she doesn't know that. She doesn't know where Jane is. She doesn't know that Arya's home. In a way, she's just saying, well, Arya's probably home by now, and I miss her. And yeah, I mean, it's her fault my wolf's dead, but I love my family, and I wish Jane were here, and Septimordane even too. It's all of that regret and all that repression kind of mixing around in there. Mm -hmm. Feelings are complicated, dude. Especially when you're 12. Yeah, and you're learning that you can feel more than one thing at once. Y'all should watch uh, Inside Out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good good idea. That actually is, there's a lot going on in that movie, too. So I get it. Like the blue one, yeah. and the green one, Sa and the... Sadness. Sad, sad, and That's the movie. Disgust. 
I'm being serious. It is good. Though. Yeah, you should all watch Inside Out. I just um, don't know their names. Literally, our feelings. <laughs> Danto says no one sent him on his honor as a knight, and Sansa's all like, "Well, I mean, you're not a knight anymore." And I kind of prayed for a night, so like, why would the gods send me this drunken old fool? I wanted Prada, they're sending me Tarjay. <laughs> no, it's, um, remember that scene in uh, 10 Things I Hate About You? She's like, well, I love, wait, no, I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. Mm-hmm. And the other girl's like, I love my Skechers. And she's like, well, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. <laughs> <laughs> that's Sansa in the scene. She's like, I wanted a Prada backpack and I got Skechers. She's like, I wanted Fiji water and I got toilet water. Oh, shit. No, and I got, I don't know, fucking mud. I was going to say, uh, not Aquafina, though. The Crownlands sent her mud. E- Evian. She got Evian instead of Fiji. Oh. That's where I was going. Yeah. Well, actually, Dantos isn't Evian. I'm sorry. No, you're right. Yeah. He's like when you take a Brita filter and you run toilet water through it. Christ. What a waste of a Brita filter is what I'm trying to say. I know. Danto says that he's finally found the courage to be a true knight because Sansa saved him. And he speaks of another fool who's also the greatest knight of all. Which, of course, Sansa knows who this is because she knows all of the songs. Florian, she whispers. And then Sansa's like, wait, hold on. First of all, Danto did not find the courage as we were talking about. It was the gold. Sansa, though, at least is like, hold up, hold up. How is this going to work? How are you going to get me out of King's Landing? But actually, though, and Dantos gives, like, the most basic-ass plan. Yeah, so we're going to get you out of the castle. Then there are some ships, and we're going to use some gold to buy passage for you. Where does the gold come from? He's like, ah, we're going to find it. We're going to find the gold. And then Sansa's like, all right, well, sure, that sounds pretty straightforward, so can we just go now? Danto says we need to wait until the time is right. And can you please put your knife away? Yeah, that's not weird. Also, like, what's he going to pay in? Bitcoin? Like, I don't <laughs> Dantos, honey, sweetie. That's like the giveaway, though, you know, like, how is he planning on getting her out? He has no gold. He's a fool. He had everything stripped of him when she saved his life. He's paid in lodging and food, I guess. And life. Not dying, which, like, isn't a great deal, you know, like... Yeah, I get it for free. Yeah. I mean, I pay healthcare, I guess, but... Yeah, Dantos should have some, like, I don't know, benefits. Like, Dantos is only getting paid in benefits, right? He doesn't have an actual, like... It's perks. He's got perks. Yeah. And the perks are staying alive. I guess he didn't have much to negotiate with. Yeah, I mean, Sansa did her best. Did our best. He's got to get on. He's got to get on LinkedIn. Oh my god, he should have been at these networking meetings getting drunk. Yeah. Sansa says, "Rise, sir." Thank you, sweet lady. Sir Dantos lurched clumsily to his feet and brushed earth and leaves from his knees. Your lord father was as true a man as the realm has ever known, but I stood by and let them slay him. I said nothing, did nothing, and yet when Joffrey would have slain me, you spoke up. Lady, I have never been a hero. No Ryan Redwine, nor Barrison the Bold. I've won no tourneys, no renown in war. But I was a knight once, and you have helped me remember what that meant. My life is a poor thing, but it is yours. 
Sir Dantos placed a hand on the gnarled bowl of the heart tree. He was shaking. She saw. I vow with your father's gods as witness that I shall send you home. He swore a solemn oath before the gods. And Dantos does keep this oath. To be fair. He does. Um, I like that Sansa says rise, Sarah, here. Mm-hmm. It's a big callback to kind of reminds me of Catelyn and Brienne. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Catelyn and Brienne thing. Great point. Because that happens like this book. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what's not explored in the story, though? Like, you brought up last time how Dantos is the last of his house. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Dantos's alcoholism... It's it's kind of hinted at, but it's not really, like, dug into. It's his way of self-medicating in this, like, really self-destructive manner. His own trauma, right? Yeah. In the system and world that's also failed Sir Dantos. Because, like, this system's given power to monsters like Joffrey and Ares, and they've just destroyed his entire family and his home, and they've stolen his future from him. Like, everything. Yeah, and of course, it brings back that sins of our fathers uh, idea and thematic and what kind of it entails for different characters. And for Dantos, this is all he has left. Mm -hmm. It's too risky to send another note. Dantos says they have to meet up from time to time in the godswood. It's the only safe place because the walls have ears, but the trees have eyes. So, hmm. Hmm. Santos apologizes for having to mock Sansa during court, uh, which we will see in the next chapter, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sansa runs back alone from the godswood because it's not safe for uh, Dantos and Sansa to be seen together. But she does give him a kiss on the cheek before she leaves because she thinks she's supposed to do that because of the songs and stuff. Uh, she's also super excited, and she can only think of home as she's racing back to her room when she runs into the hound at the top of some steps. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> Sansa caroomed into him and lost her balance. Iron fingers caught her by the wrist before she could fall, and a deep voice rasped at her. It's a long roll down the serpentine, little bird. Want to kill us both? His laughter was rough as saw on stone. Maybe you do. Here, I think the Hound is definitely referencing that uh, final chapter in the Game of Thrones where Sansa, you know, she's about to lunge at Joffrey and she's going to kill them both and then the Hound stops her. He remembers that moment. He remembers that she was like, all right, we're doing this. The Hound asks her where she had been at this hour and she says, the gods would, praying for my father and that Joffrey's not hurt. Which, of course, is an obvious lie. The Hound asks her if she thinks he's so drunk he'd believe that. Which, everyone is kind of drunk in this chapter, except Sansa. So, that's bullshit. Poor Sansa. She deserves it. Get that girl a drink. Let Sansa Stark finish her blunt. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. I said what I said. Sandor says some pretty creepy, gross things. Some lecherous kind of things. And he tells her to sing him a song. He says that Sansa likes songs about knights after all, to which Sansa says, true knights, and Sandra's all like, guess I'm not one of those. He then offers to take her back to her cage. And on the way back, they see Boros Blown, and he fucking sucks. And Ew. Sansa's like, he's the worst of the King's Guard because of his foul temper. And then the Hound's like, fuck that guy, he's a patoot. <laughs> and... 
Boros is like, Sandra, where have you been? Sansa, where have you been? Sandra's like, fuck you. And Sansa's all like, I was praying for the king and the gods would. And she thinks to herself, the lie sounded better this time. And then Sandra backs her up. He's all like, I mean, how can you expect her to sleep with all of this noise? You expect her to sleep with all of the- Wow, shit. You expect her to sleep with all of this noise? Clegane said. What was the trouble? Fools at the gate, Sir Boros admitted. Some loose tongues spread tales of the preparations for Tyrek's wedding feast, and these wretches got it in their heads. They should be feasted too. How dare the people want to eat? God damn. His grace led a sortie and set them scurrying. Alright, it's sortie for sure. A brave boy, Clegane said, mouth twitching. Let us see how brave he is when he faces my brother. Yeah, girl. Sansa asks Sandor why he lets people call him a dog, and of course Sandor says that dogs are better than people. True. True. Very true. We do not deserve dogs. No, we don't. We get a lot of exposition about House Clegane and how it came to serve House Lannister. My father's father was a kennel master at the Rock. One autumn year, Lord Titus came between a lioness and her prey. The lioness didn't give a shit that she was Lannister's own sigil. Bitch tore into my lord's horse and would have done for my lord, too. But my grandfather came up with the hounds. Three of his dogs died running her off. My grandfather lost a leg, so Lannister paid him for it with lands and a tower house and took his son to squire. The three dogs on our banner are the three that died in the yellow of autumn grass. A hound will die for you, but never lie to you, and he'll look you straight in the face. He cupped her under the jaw, raising her chin, his fingers pinching her painfully. And that's more than little birds can do, isn't it? I never got my song. It's a sexual joke, you guys. Every time Sandor makes a reference, and I mean, it keeps coming up with Sansa more and more, obviously, as her sexuality kind of blooms ugh, in this book. Like, she... Ew. I know, I hated that, Go too. Away. I'm sorry. You made a fucking Frozen reference in I our know. notes, so Whatever. you have literally no room to stand or talk in. Okay, I have the floor. Sit down, Eliana. I- <laughs> and it's not as explicit here. It becomes more explicit when Sandor is drunk as fuck during the Blackwater, which we'll get to, but... There's certain language in this scene, and it's something we're going to float on back to when we do our 18-hour episode for Blackwater. Uh, It mirrors directly this scene right here with Sansa cupping Sandor's face when he cries compared to him pinching her painfully and her almost crying here. And, of course, this is one of my favorite quotes and a little sidebar I'll share. I really want to get the Clegane dogs, like, all black tattooed on my leg just against the white and have, like, in a dark yellow font, a hound will die for you, but never lie to you. And he'll look you in the face, curled between them. So, just jot that down on my whole thigh. That's what I want. That's what she wants. Sansa offers a song. She offers to sing a song about Florian and Jonquil, because, like, you know, this is top of mind, and... Sandra's like, no, that sounds lame. Play Despacito. <laughs> Sansa's all like, she's gonna one day sing a song for him, very gladly. Yes, she is. It's it's a sexual thing. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like, when she's older. Like, okay, here's an anecdote, a Chloe anecdote. We haven't done one of these since last week, so obviously. <laughs> when I was three... Oh my God. Yep, I'm doing this. I don't even... 
When I was three, I went to the Indy 500 with my dad and my mom, and I saw girls that were carrying signs that said something about showing their tits. And I was like, Dad, when I get older, I'm going to show my titties. And then I was like, what are titties? Dad, what does that word mean that I read on that sign? So Sansa is all like, I'm going to sing a song for you. And I'm like, Sansa, sweetie, what I'm trying to say is singing a song for a guy means something different to the guy than it does for you. You know, like he's he's kind of jokingly mocking her like, oh, you're going to sing me a song, are you? And then Sandor says that Sansa's a shitty liar. Everyone in King's Landing is a liar and they're all better than she is because a dog, after all, can smell a lie. I just want to call us back to when Sansa earlier in this chapter said that Lady, lady could smell out falsehoods. Oh, get the girl a dog. She'll be happier for it. Get it? I, yeah. Yep, see what because, I did? Uh, a, a hound will die for you, but never lie to you. Yep. I see it. And no one could hurt you again or I'd kill them. Anyways, so our next lightning round. Again, there are so many chapters between these Sansa chapters. Yeah. So we're just going to speed through this. Eliana? Yep, and it starts out with, of course, uh, Arya Fiverr. Gendry pulls him a lawn uh, with Arya when he, like, finds out, oh my god, you're a girl, but, like, also you're super famous. And then they all get captured, and Gendry gets captured particularly by Gregor Clegane and his men. So then they all try to rescue him, and then Hot Pie freaks out, and then Arya gets caught, and then Lamy dies, and, like, sad face emojis all over. Oh, yeah. Tyrion 5. Tyrion gets a lot of shit done in this chapter, and the book, honestly. Like, he's just busy yeah. in Clash. Today, he meets with the alchemists. He hears Rob's peace terms from Cleos Frey. He hears prophets talking about incest and corruption. And then he fights with Cersei about sending her daughter to Dorne. Brand 3. Oh, those are my babies. Oh, these are Chloe's babies, who are the best secondary characters in the world. Uh. They show up in this chapter, and her children, my children. Chloe's children, she birthed these children, I birthed along them. with Marcella and Tommen. <laughs> but maybe I birthed Marcella and Tommen. I don't know. <laughs> Chloe's babies, Mira and Jochen Reed, who are okay. They're like a little homeschooled, and they're socially maladjusted, kind of. But uh, Bran dreams about the Reeds, right? And they're visiting the wolves in the godswood. I love them so much. I love my babies. They're great. In Catelyn 2, Catelyn attempts to mediate between Renly and Rob. She doesn't get that far, and she later hears that Stannis has besieged Storm's End. John 3. John meets the man who makes Cersei and Jaime look like infants, incapable of sexery. The, the legend, Craster. <laughs> John learns that this dude... It's not explicit, it's hinted at. Sacrifices his kids to the White Walkers, and then later he like has like some chit-chat with J.R. Mormon about it. But also More important we meet part. Cassie from Skins. Oh my god. <laughs> we meet Gilly, and also Man's Raider has an army. <laughs> In Theon 2. My baby boy has his second POV chapter. He goes home. But also he has his second POV chapter. My baby boy. I really don't plan on anything else like, except Our that. Our baby boy. That's it. We birthed him together. We Yes. We simul I did the top half. Chloe did the bottom half. And we put them together. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of pain. It was Here a we are. lot of work. So that was Theon too. <laughs> Tyrion 6. Tyrion poisons his sister, 
just just a little bit so that he can go do some shit, which is that he sends Lannister demands for peace to Rob Stark. Then he has to go listen to Alistair Thorne. Ew. And he locks Grand Maester Pycelle the fuck up. Thank God. Somebody had to. Somebody had to. Arya's six. Arya's stuck in the creepy torture village still, and no one knows where Beric Dondarrion is. She gets a promotion, and she ends up working for the man, Tywin Lannister, and she gets the luxury of working under Whis. Whis! <laughs> Brand four. Jojen can see some shit, and he's seen Bran. He then tries to unlock Bran's secret powers, and then Summer gets, like, super aggressive. Maester Lewin, though, shits on Bran's dreams. He's like, magic isn't real. He's, like, totally <laughs> Vernon Dursleying it. Uh, but he's also, it's literally Bran's dreams, you know? Yeah, thank but you. But he's not literally shitting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny, considering you and your the connections Tyrion? to the Shitadel. Yeah. Um, That's true. That's true. In Tyrion 7, Tyrion wins over Lancel in some uh, sparring of scheming, and then he bangs Shay. That was it. That was a chapter. This is a quite the lightning round. Yeah. You're lightning. Arya 7. Arya's new job sucks. She should go to some networking events. Yeah. And the new hires are the prisoners that she freed like a chapter or two ago. And so that's kind of cool. But one of them also is Jock and Hagar. He's like, ooh, I'm going to kill some people for you. It's like the best friend you can make in prison slash work. That's true, actually. Catelyn 3. Catelyn tries to mediate again between Stannis and Renly now, which goes worse than the Rob and Renly mediation. Something about a peach happens, then they decide to go to war, and Renly's like, no, you have to stay and see my victory. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Ha ha. It's gonna be a fun chapter whenever we get to it. Someday. Someday. I, I am someday. excited for that. It's gonna be very fun. Yeah. A little silly, but fun, I think. Rob's victory costs Sansa greatly in Sansa 3. Tyrion Lannister arrives in time to stop Boros Blount from beating Sansa for all the noble lords and ladies of the court to see. Sansa Stark, A Clash of Kings 3! Sandra Clegane comes to bring Sansa to Joffrey. And Sandra says, like, if Sansa keeps him waiting, she's only going to make it worse. But Sansa is getting ready, and she's wondering if Joffrey actually knows that she's been sneaking off and meeting with Sir Nantos. And it's interesting because Sansa took really great care to make sure she was never found in consorting with Dantos. She burns the letter in the fire. She lies her ass off. And Dantos, as we see later in this chapter, treats her mostly indifferently, as the others do. And no one ever suspects him. So in this scene, like Sansa's talking about this dress that she's wearing so that, you know, sure, making Joffrey wait will make things worse. But she's trying to take care to wear something nice so that Joffrey won't, like, be super mean to her supposedly and she wears a dress because joff apparently tends to like her in this specific dress and color and we don't actually learn which dress is it so which dress is it can we assume like that it's the green one because she's worn this around him a few times already and it's come up in a few ch chapters yeah i would imagine it's either the green one or possibly the pale purple silk those are kind of the two options that we get as far as being mentioned as joffrey's favorite uh if it's the pale purple silk Maybe she's wearing her moonstones, etc. You never know. This is apparently, yeah, important to me. Um, Sansa then asks the Hound what it is that she did this time, and the Hound comments that it isn't for her. It's because her brother 
King Rob. King in the North. King in the North. The King in the North. The King in the North. The King in the, the North. King in the North. Uh, has committed acts. And Sans is like, uh, Rob is the traitor. I had no part in this. I've been here. Literally in my tower. Like, I've gone nowhere. I've been here. And that she also fears that if anything happened to Jamie Lannister, though, they're going to have Ill and Payne kill her. And of course, that's her biggest fear, right? It has started since the beginning of A Game of Thrones. The sound of the steps mm-hmm. on stone, the singing of steel. It's plagued her nightmares since the very beginning. Of course, at the end of A Game of Thrones, Sansa has complete reason to be plagued by this image. This shows Sansa's strong intuition and, again, shows her always kind of having a thought for it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Rob's a traitor. Sansa knew the words by rote. I had no part in whatever he did. Gods be good. Please don't let it be the Kingslayer. If Rob had harmed Jamie Lannister, it would mean her life. She thought of Sir Illyn and how those terrible pale eyes stared pitilessly out of that gaunt, pockmarked face. The hound snorted. They trade you well, little bird. He conducted her to the lower bailey, where a crowd had gathered around the archery butts, but men moved aside to let them through. She could hear Lord Giles coughing. Loitering stable hands eyed her insolently, but Sir Horace Redwine averted his gaze as she passed, and his brother Hopper pretended not to see her. A yellow cat was dying on the ground, mewling piteously, a crossbow quarrel through its ribs. Sansa stepped around it, feeling ill. Sir Dantus approached on his broomstick horse. Stick horse. Been too drunk. Stick horse. First of his name. Second of his name now, right? Since he'd been too drunk to mount his gesture at the tourney. Mm-hmm. The king had decreed that henceforth he must always go horsed. Be brave, he whispered, squeezing her arm. Man, there's a lot of really gross and brutal imagery in the yellow dying cat. It kind of sums up Joffrey's entire reign and rather Tywin's legacy, right? A yellow cat dying piteously, no lion, a crossbow quarrel through it. It also kind of reminds me of the Sea Lord story Sirio tells Arya in A Game of Thrones 4 about a fat yellow cat in the lap of the Sea Lord, and that the Sea Lord had asked him, have you ever seen her like of the cat? And of course, Sirio had said, each night in the alleys of Bravos, I see a thousand like him. That was a day that he was named the first sword of Bravos, and Arya didn't understand that. So Sirio says, the cat was an ordinary cat, no more. The others expected a fabulous beast, so that is what they saw. How large it was, they said. It was no larger than any other cat, only fat from indolence. For the sea lord fed it from his own table. What curious small ears. They, its ears, had been chewed away in kitten fights. And it was plainly a tomcat, yet the sea lord said her, and that is what the others saw. Are you hearing? So, of course, in the end, it was just a cat made bigger by talk of others. It also feels like, A, this is a reference to, of course, the emperor's new clothes, but, you know, with a cat. <laughs> this cat sounds like a chonk. I invited Chloe to this Facebook group called This Cat is Chonky. Oh Top content. Um, and also, the language here, um, as you pointed out regarding that cat, it kind of reminds me of that line from the Reigns of Castamere, right? Um, only a cat of a different coat. Yeah. That's all the truth I know. It's no lion, just a cat. Absolutely. A different coat. 
In the end, Tywin Lannister did not shit gold. He shit shit. He shit cats. Wait. Wait. Cats shit that gold. That would be cool. Anyways, so Sansa immediately is led to the lower bailey. Boros Blount, Marin Trant are both standing beside Joffrey, and she kneels to him immediately, but he snaps that kneeling won't save her. She is being brought here to answer for her brother's treasons. The hound is commanded to pull her up, and the text says that he does so, but not ungently. So he's still being gentle toward her. Lancel Lannister is the one to address her, claiming Rob's army fell upon Stafford Lannisters with sorcery and an army of wargs. He claims Northmen butchered thousands of men while they slept and ate their flesh afterward. Joffrey asks what she has to say of herself. He points his crossbow at her face. He claims the Starks are unnatural, like her wolf that savaged him. And of course, Sansa says it was Nymeria that savaged him, not Lady. And he just brushes it off and he says how he wants to shoot her. But Cersei says they'll kill Jamie if he does. Which, of course, is the opposite of what Sansa's fear was earlier. So it, at least it goes two ways. <laughs> Good for her. Job security. Yeah. For now, until, you know, Marjorie. During this point, um, when Joffrey's pointing that crossbow at her, he's also boasting about this man that he killed, that he's like, oh, this guy was bigger than Ned Stark. And then he says this uh, that very concerning thing about these people. This was this is in the sortie that Joffrey quote-unquote led, probably, like in the previous chapter. And he goes, that all the people were shouting my name and calling for bread like I was some baker but i taught them better i shot the loudest one through the throat yeah. and then he also boasts about shooting some woman in the arm like uh these people were held behind by a gate and you know we also have all of this news building up especially from the previous chapter of like tyrex wedding and all of this combined is just paints a perfect picture of why the small folk hate Joffrey so much. Like, this is why the riots are happening. This is why Tyrek gets pulled off his horse by the mob. He's having, like, a fucking wedding feast. And everyone's like, ah, maybe I should have anything to eat. And the Lannisters have shown that they just don't care for those people at all. And this inspires no loyalty. It's It's hammered home throughout this chapter with, like, what if you didn't make people fear you? And... It's going to be the downfall of the Lannisters. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of, it proves what we learn later from Cersei too, when she says, oh, fear is the way of the people's heart. And of course we get our classic queen line from Sansa. If you inspire the people to love you, you don't have riots in the street. You know, if you mm -hmm. help people, if you feed them, you know, look at good queen Alysanne. Uh it's just very obvious that the Lannister rule is tainted from the start. Joffrey commands the Hound to beat Sansa, but Dantos makes a diversive moment where he whacks Sansa with a morning star with a melon attached at the end over her head. So she's just like dripping melon juice and she's like, fingers crossed, like, hopefully this awful embarrassing moment saves me from Joffrey's rage. But of course, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't, but... Dantos is, of course, living up to what he said in the previous chapters to some extent. And I would, I will say that Dantos suddenly coming in here, uh, it's a little convenient writing on George R. R. Martin's part, because then that means we still don't know what Sander would have done with this order, because then uh, we're distracted from the fact that Sander is the one who got that original order to beat Sansa. I think that's a huge part of it, too, because for Sandor, that's the point. 
This builds him up to breaking. Yeah, George didn't show us whether or not Sandor would choose because Sandor doesn't know what he would do if he had to actually do it. It's the biggest part of his breaking to Arya. I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the song. She never gave it. You know, it's everything comes crashing down for Sandor when he breaks. And this is part of it. This exact penultimate moment of Joffrey commanding him to hit her and him just standing there. Thankfully, Dantos took the moment's opportunity. But if he had had to, what would he have chosen? He doesn't know. Yeah, and we don't know. Because then Joffrey, I guess, gets distracted briefly. And he's like, you know what, fucking Boros, you do it. You You beat Sansa. Leave her face, Joffrey commanded. I like her pretty. Boros slammed a fist into Sansa's belly, driving the air out of her. When she doubled over, the knight grabbed her hair and drew his sword, and for one hideous instant, she was certain he meant to open her throat. Vibes. And as he laid the flat of the blade across her thigh, she thought her legs might break from the force of the blow. Sansa screamed. Tears welled in her eyes. It will be over soon. She soon lost count of the blows. Enough! She heard the hound rasp. No, it isn't, the king replied. Boros, make her naked. Boros shoved a meaty hand down the, goddamn, the front of Sansa's bodice and gave a hard yank. The silk came tearing away, bearing her to the waist. Sansa covered her breasts with her hands. She could hear sniggers far off and cruel. Beat her, bloody, Joffrey said. We'll see how her brother fancies. What is the meaning of this? So I would just like to proclaim that it's actually illegal in three countries to hate Sansa Stark. And if I hear you hating Sansa Stark ever again, I will literally call the cops on you, first off. Second off, I hope you feel intensely uncomfortable when you read this passage, because I feel intensely uncomfortable. This passage literally takes my breath out of me. Like when Sansa's punched in the stomach, by a full-grown man, when a 12-year-old girl who's barely hitting puberty, hasn't even had her first period, is standing in a room full of adults, just adults and adults and adults, and is being beat by men who are sworn to be true knights, beat the shit out of. Like, this is physically painful to read this passage for me. Like, it is disgusting. Like, you, like when you stop, because Boros shoved a meaty hand down the front of Sansa's bodice. Like, she is in the middle of royal court, and this is what their regime has brought. Like, beating innocent young girls. doesn't matter if her dad was a traitor. She's done nothing wrong. Like, nothing. It, yeah, it's disgusting. It's all just the worst. This is the worst. It's the worst. It's all building on those starving people. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't. He didn't. And so we get Tyrion Lannister arriving to court, and he has brought his tribesmen, and he's brought Bronn. And he demands that Sir Boris Blond tell him what kind of knight beats helpless maids. And Blond, of course, responds with, like, one that serves his king. And so he draws his sword, and Sir Meryn does as well. Of course, like, really, really, Boros, really, you're gonna draw your sword, and so Sir Meryn, like, that's gonna happen here today? Really? Whatever. Also, of course, Major Jamie vibes that we are sworn to protect her, but not from him, right? That's what this scene emanates. And of course, of course, are there no true knights? 
are there no true knights? Yeah. Braun then warns them all to be careful because, like, oh, you wouldn't want to get blood all over your white cloaks, which is an obvious rib, an appreciated rib. Tyrion then asks for someone to go get Sansa something to fucking cover up with, and so Sander wraps Sansa in his cloak. And the coarse weave was scratchy against her skin, but no velvet had ever felt so fine. Uh, I have feelings about that quote, so I'm going to go ahead, since this is our podcast and I can do what I want. (laughs) Also, it's illegal to hate Sansa Stark. Just want to make sure we reiterate that every, like, passage that we get through. So just make sure that you know the law in this country. Um, This is extremely important line because... This cloak has so much symbolism. There's a lot to come that we'll talk about more with this cloak, too. Like, if this cloak survives through the series to a different point in time, uh, we do see it come up again, I believe. And Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros has an amazing theory we'll talk about in the future about that. But in a way, this, this cloak is cloaking Sansa under Sandor's protection. And it's all been leading up to Sandor and Sansa having some sort of moment, like, further than this, of course. But even since, you know, the very first time that Sandor found himself somewhat accidentally protecting her. Also, it does give some very cloaking a woman under your protection vibes, right? Sandor, who is totally a virgin, uh, wrapping his white cloak around Sansa. It kind of reminds you of, like, Holden Caulfield. Like, how he, like, would call Hmm. sex workers just to chat, you know? Uh, Sansa being wrapped in this chivalry that she craves from this man that she refused to look at, who refuses to be a knight, right? Who is the truth, the ugly face, but not, you know, beautiful. Her declaration that it felt better than velvet also is kind of showing, just like earlier with the pageantry of the gods and how she's more accepting of her home gods now, she's disconnecting from that materialistic value of pretty fabrics and knights and songs. And building on that idea of like that velvet versus the scratchy cloak, right? It's it's very much symbolic of what's happening in this exact scene that we are seeing. Like the velvet has all of those trappings of nobility and richness and it looks beautiful, right? But it it is the humbler cloth, that scratchy white cloak that serves an actual purpose here. It's the same as like with the different men who come into Sansa's storyline in Clash and Storm, it's Sandor and Tyrion and Dantos who they are the ones who are acting in the place of a hero in Sansa's story. Like they may look like a sorry lot, but they're the ones who are showing honor here compared to the King's Guard and the Royals. Yeah, I mean look at Sandor's rough spun model, right? Like he's always wearing dun and just like brown scratchy outfits. But right now he's the closest thing to salvation that Sansa's had in the story so far. It also is killing me because she's 12. A room full of fucking adults. Adults with, you know, protection in their house. Adults with knights. Adults with swords. Adults in armor. A room full of adults can't speak one word for her, except for Sandor and Tyrion. But a 12-year-old tried to save a drunk old man who meant nothing to her. Like, think on that. Mm -hmm. That's, That's pretty intense to think about. That... Sansa had the audacity, the boldness to, you know, try to help Dantos, and not a single one of those people could stand up for her. Yeah, and of course, Dantos points this out. 
in that previous chapter. He's like, no one saved, tried to save your dad, but you were no one at this point. Yeah. You saved me. Yep. Tyrion is incredulous at Joffrey's behavior. Does, like, Joffrey have no regard for Sansa's honor? She's going to be his wife and his queen someday. And Joffrey responds that he's punishing Sansa for having the wolf's blood. And Joffrey retorts with then Joffrey has the wits of a goose and reminds him that Aerys Targaryen did whatever he liked and that went really well for him. Then Sir Boros Blount, who is a butt, or Sir, like Sir Boros, Boros Butt, <laughs> warns, that's it from now on. That's what I'm calling Sir him. Boros Tyrion. the Butt. Indeed, against threatening the king, and Tyrion replies that he's merely educating his nephew, and Tyrion tells Timid and Bronn to kill Boros if that butt opens his mouth again, and Boros tries to use the queen as a safety net, saying that Cersei's going to hear of this, and Tyrion's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> Let's go get your mom, Joffrey. That's gonna go great. And, I mean, this is obviously some prime Tyrion material here, right? Like, like, this, of course, is one of the things that causes many readers to love Tyrion. It's his scathing wit, which makes many readers like him. But it's also why he becomes a villain in the eyes of so many in King's Landing. Like, this is not how you make friends. I mean, neither is, I guess, having your wife, your future wife, beat in front of a lot of people. But, you know. And then marrying is- the king's ex-future wife. That was beat in front of everybody and then making her married to the imp and like damaged goods. Technically your aunt, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. It is is a good call though on Tyrion's part and to Cersei's somewhat credit, right? That Tyrion feels that if he had gotten Cersei, what was happening to Sansa would not have been permitted. And I, I don't know, I don't think Joff would have necessarily felt any shame, but it it says something that to say that he would call Cersei would have some sort of repercussion. Tyrion tells Joffrey he should use his mouth less and his ears more, or his reign might end up shorter than Tyrion. Joffrey claims Cersei taught him to value fear over love when Tyrion criticizes his ruling techniques, and Joffrey says, see, even Sansa fears me. Tyrion thinks it's a pity Stannis and Renly aren't 12-year-old girls. (laughs) <laughs> Which is a line that, of course, creates great continuity as things come to a head at the Blackwater, where we're going to do a 24-hour episode. Am I doing this right? Yeah, you are. Stannis is not cowed by fear himself, but um, his men, they run when they see Renly's ghost because they loved and served Renly, but also now they're like afraid because, like, oh my god, spoopy. And, of course, Cersei talks about how one should have their subjects fear them. Yeah, I mean... Kinda wish Stannis was a twelve year old girl. Probably would love him, sure. right? But and Maybe. to be fair, him and Renly kind of act like twelve year old girls. So I digress. That's why Catelyn chastises them like twelve year old girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, she's like projecting. She misses her daughters, so she's got a she's got a mom. Someone. Tyrion has Bronn and Timet bring Sansa along with them, and they travel to the Tower of the Hand. Haven't been there in a minute. She's shaking, and she's moving like she's in a dreamlike state. Serving girls begin to tend to her. Maester Franken treats her wounds. Note, it's not Maester Pycelle. Hallelujah, sister. Uh, (laughs) Oh, but she does, she's like, Maester Franken, you stupid man, I'm not going to feel better. (laughs) Right? Also, like, how could she? 
She thinks about how the Hound hates knights, and now she hates them as well, and she does not believe in true knights. She falls asleep, and when Sansa wakes up, her legs are paining her, which really stuck out to me, this read-through, as Eliana's written about before. Sansa has such uttered-like language in her chapters, the way they're written, the way you're launched into the events after they've happened, and also in what's occurring in Sansa's trauma. She's going through a lot in these first few Clash chapters. These have been heavy chapters. And of course, just the language that she dreams and when she wakes, her legs are paining her. Like that's, that's Ned. That just, we read that like a few chapters ago. We read that in Ned's. Yes. Yeah. We did. Ned. We read him. <laughs> Dad, no. Dad, no. There's this woman. Um, Sansa finds a woman that's guarding her door. And... Oh. She says that she wants to go to the Godswood. Which I didn't really realize until this, like, that had to have been Chella, right? That was Chella at her door. Probably. It had to have been. Yeah. She wants to go find Dantos, and she wants to leave as soon as possible. She's like, I am getting out of this place after yesterday. The woman isn't letting her leave, per Tyrion, so Sansa kind of resumes, goes back defeated into the tower, and she refuses to eat any of Tyrion's food that's brought to her the next morning. And later, Tyrion tells her, you're a guest here. You're not a prisoner here. And I mean, like, uh, maybe not in this tower, but that's not, like, the most accurate nor astute thing to say, Tyrion. Like, Insensitive. Sansa might not, yeah, Sansa might not be a prisoner in this tower. Like, she's, she's definitely a prisoner in King's Landing. Yeah. Like, Everyone knows it. Every second she breathes. Everyone knows. It's not a secret. Yeah, it's not a secret at all. Tyrion explains what happened to her during Rob's battle. He gives her a little breakdown. It wasn't sorcery. Lancel just has kind of a penchant for drama, which I bet he was totally in musicals when he was a kid. I love this line that gets said where Tyrion says, Sorcery is the sauce men spoon over failure to hide the flavor of their own incompetence, which does kind of have some Stannis vibes, interestingly enough. Sick burn. But also, I'm going to throw this out there. There's a little bit of sorcery. Right, right. Like, Rob's soldiers, they cut the horse lines, and then Rob sends Grey Wind. Grey Wind? <laughs> you know, this is sorcery. And to rile the horses up, which causes the horses to panic um, their way into a stampede. And then the horses kill a bunch of people, and most of the men left in fear. And some of the people who are dead, it's Rupert Brax, Lyman Vickery, Lord Craig Hall, and Ontario Jast. Fifty of these people are taken prisoner, including Jas' sons and Martin Lannister. And Stafford didn't have any sentries. Most of his army, they were, like, made up of green boys just out of Lannisport. And they can't quite figure out how Rob got through to the Oxcross since the Lannisters have, they have the Golden Tooth. And the men there swear they didn't pass through, which, like, sorcery. <laughs> Quote, unquote. I mean... I'm I'm just saying skin changing kind of counts as sorcery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tyrion doesn't really care though because Rob's like Joffrey's problem. Joffrey is Tyrion's A. Tyrion asks Sansa how she feels about Joffrey. My love for his grace is greater than it's ever been. The imp laughed aloud. Well, someone has taught you to lie well. You may be grateful for that one day, child. You are a child still, are you not? Or have you flowered? 
Damn, could someone lay the fuck off of Sansa's pussy for once? Like, uh, I, I'm sorry, you ain't gonna catch me. You're not gonna be following me around going, have you blood yet? Hey, when's your period? Hey, when's your period coming? My period's coming now. <laughs> God. No, uh, it, it isn't. That was last week. But yeah, it's really annoying. No one needs to know when your fucking period's coming. Like, I mean, chill. yeah. Also, Sansa is learning to lie better. We're watching it actually unfold in the last couple chapters. And she has to get good at it. It's the only way for her to survive. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the second time today that Sansa is being told that she's been taught well when it comes to these sorts of lies. Yeah, it's just, of course, the Hound is smarter than everyone else at court, and he can smell a lie, as we learned. So, I mean, she's really not stupid. She's doing great. You're doing good, honey. I love you. You know? Doing amazing, sweetie. Tyrion tells Sansa that Tyrion doesn't actually intend for her to marry Joffrey because, you know, it. it is a shame, though, because... This Stark-Lannister alliance through Sansa and Joffrey is actually one of the smarter things that Robert had ever suggested. Sansa's afraid that this is a trick, and she says she only means to remain loyal to the crown. Tyrion's like, I don't blame you, because when I was your age, all I wanted to do was run away from my family. Tyrion has noticed that Sansa prays in the godswood every day, and he asks her what she prays for. She thinks on how she prays for Rob's victory and Joffrey's death, but of course she can't say any of those things to Tyrion, and she tells him she prays for the fighting to end. This is where Tyrion gets a little harsh. He warns Sansa that, yes, your brother won at Oxcross, but the next battle between Rob and Tywin will finish it. And Oxcross was insignificant. If Rob is smart, he'll bend the knee, and Sansa will be home to Winterfell when there's peace. He offers to have some of his clansmen guard Sansa, maybe Chella, if that comforted her if having a woman guard her comforts her more. Sansa thinks about Dantos rescuing her, and she says no. The wildlings frighten her. But Tyrion, of course, pushes. He says they frighten Joffrey and his court as well, so no one would harm her. Which, this is a constant we're going to see, that Sansa can't trust the men around her that she thinks are savages or untrustworthy. She resists his pushes and his lies and tells him she prefers sleeping in her own bed, as this is the tower where her father's men were slain and she has nightmares of their ghosts. Tyrion agrees to have her escorted back to her chambers, understanding. She's smart enough to know she can't trust any of them, never again. Doesn't matter how kind they act. Cersei acted kindly. Joffrey as well. Good girl. She's learning. And along with that learning comes with, you know, that lie, uh, the way that this is written. It says that, some suddenly something came to her and it just felt so true and it was easy for her to say that and a lot of Sansa's storyline is going to be about that right finding something that has a small grounding that sounds like it's true to who she is and her character and using that to her gain which is something that of course Littlefinger is going to build on later on when he's like here's lying 201 <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I love getting to watch the transformation of Sansa politically. We're seeing it now, right now, in front of our eyes. It's beginning. You know, it's beginning. She's learning. She's putting up walls. She's kind of just learning who she can and can't trust slowly but surely because it's no one. Oh, is it no one? Mm. 
Oh, you're talking about Shira Seastar, right? Yeah, I am. I am. Shira Seastar is no one. Pass it on. I'm talking about Shira Seastar. I'm talking about... Quaithe. Um, Quaithe, yep. Aegon and Ashara Dane, who had a daughter, which was Daenerys. Yep. Yeah, the, those two. Wait, what? For sure. Oh my god. All right. So... Sansa 2 and 3 in the books. Save it. Export it. We did it, guys. Girls gone canon fanons. <laughs> Thanks for listening in, you guys. This has been a blast. We have episode 25 next week. We are recording this week, and it will be out hopefully by Halloween there for patrons. $5 and up patrons will get access to it. It is our episode on identity in A Song of Ice and Fire in Disguises. And a few thematic identity things we'll touch on here and there. Uh, I personally have set forward some titles already, proposed some titles. I think we have 10 more puns to get through before we choose. I haven't seen it. I gotta look at these titles and help narrow it down. Uh, I only have the one that I have it titled as currently that's written. I will write the rest of them. I have ideas. All right. I'm excited. Oh, man. Yeah, we're really excited about this episode. It's going to be very it's not gonna be that spooky it's gonna be spooky it's gonna be pretty spooky yeah though live spooky die spooky so hey if you are not a patron of ours please give it a quick look just our little spiel you don't gotta we're still gonna make these episodes no matter what whether you're a patron or not but if you are you'll get some extra fun content uh we'll throw you some fun stuff we like surprises we like to get sassy and saucy on patreon so that's patreon.com slash girls gone canon Again, patreon.com slash girls gone canon. Our tiers start at one dollar. Uh and they don't end. So you can just, you know, whatever. Whatever, man. And of course, be sure to subscribe to us on all of the different things. For example, like on iTunes or on Google Play. Maybe you prefer Stitcher or Acast. Or you know, you can just go where we actually like upload all the things too on Podbean. All of these are perfectly good options for you to subscribe and listen to us. Yeah. And if you want to chat with us, you can always send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the episode or on A Song of Ice and Fire or talk about horses or something with Eliana. And you can also send us a tweet at girlsgonecanon or you can send us a DM there as well. And of course, I have been Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor or on Tumblr as liesandarbor.tumblr.com where I write meta-analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire and some other junk. You can also find uh, my podcast that is on a break, Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on Podbean and YouTube. And I'm Eliana. You can find me in your heart and <laughs> on the Maester Monthly podcast and on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Actually, it's technically all of Reddit. I don't know why I always just say the song of Ice and Fire subreddit as Glossy Able Girl. Um, sometimes I post in other subreddits, you know. Uh, and on Twitter is Arithmetric. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you Thanks, for joining guys. us. <laughs> See you next Thanks. week.